I want to welcome everyone to uh, the LSE's online uh, events platform. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and director of the U.S. Center at LSE, which is hosting today's lecture and discussion on the work of the future. Today's event is part of the U.S. Center's Wanger Distinguished Lecture Series at LSE, which is made possible by the generosity of the Henry and Consuelo Wanger Foundation. And we meet today to take up a topic that is of growing concern to policymakers and publics alike, the effect of technological innovation on the workplace. This is true in the United States, but the concerns about what technology and automation might mean for workers and citizen welfare is an issue that cuts across the globe. And these concerns and anxieties have only deepened with the dislocations and inequalities caused by COVID. How will technological innovation and change change the workplace? And how can we ensure that the benefits are widely shared? These are big questions. And we are very fortunate today to have someone who is a leading voice in this area of research and analysis, Professor David Autor. David is the Ford Professor of Economics and the Associate Head of the Department of Economics at MIT and the co-director of MIT's Work of the Future Task Force. Professor Alter has written extensively about labor market impacts on technological change and globalization's effects on wages, inequality, and electoral politics. He's received numerous awards for his scholarship and teaching, including the National Science Foundation's Career Award and Alfred P. Sloan Foundation Fellowship, the Sherwin Rosen Prize for Outstanding Contributions to the Field of Labor Economics, and MIT's prized McVicker Faculty Fellowship in recognition of his outstanding contributions to undergraduate education and exceptional teaching, mentoring, and educational innovation. We are also very fortunate to have Professor Judy Weitzman on the platform today to help us kick off what I'm sure will be a very lively uh, discussion. Professor Weitzman is the Anthony Giddens Professor of Sociology here at LSE and a fellow at the Alan Turing Institute where she is the principal investigator on the Women in Data Science and Artificial Intelligence Project. A fellow of the British Academy and the recipient of the William F. Ogburn Career Achievement Award of the American Sociological Association Professor Weitzman has published widely in the fields of work in organizations, science and technology studies, and feminist theory. Her most recent book is The Sociology of Speed, Digital, Organizational, and Social Temporalities with Oxford. A few words about the format today before we get started. David will get us going with a 30 or so minute presentation. We'll then hand things over to Judy, who will offer some comments on, on David's presentation and the, uh, and the questions that it raises. We'll then open it up to all of you. We've got a lot of time for questions. So, you know, don't be shy. Just send in your questions to us via the Q&A function on Zoom. And I will do my level best to put as many of them as possible to David and Judy during the discussion period. So normally at this point in the opening, I would ask all of you to put your hands together to give our speaker and discussant one of those warm, 
LSE welcomes. Now that of course is not possible today. So in lieu of applause, I really encourage you to put questions uh, to them in the Q&A period. So David, with that, welcome to LSE's online platform. It's great to have you with us. We look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Peter, for that nice introduction. Thank you, Judy, for uh, coming to participate in the discussion today. And I'm delighted to speak to be here. Uh, so let me speak for a while, and then I'm uh, excited for the questions. Let me start by sharing my screen. So the topic of my uh, uh, remarks is the work of the future. Uh, where will it come from? Whoops, let me start my timer. I'm having multiple technological glitches. <laughs> All right, start. Excellent, 30 minutes. Okay. Uh, so let me, I want to uh, set the context here. Um, this slide shows you the evolution of, of employment to population rates of men and women in the United States from 1890 to 2015. And as you can see, for most of the last 125 years, the fraction of adults working in the paid labor market has risen, not fallen. Uh, a lot of that rise reflects the movement of women out of unpaid, constrictive uh, work uh, to uh, the paid labor market where they have much more choice, opportunity to uh, exercise uh, creativity and use their skills in education. Um, so looking at this picture, um, there's no immediate reason to think that we're uh, running out of work. And that itself is a startling fact, because if you think about it, uh, the last 200 years uh, have been characterized by incredible labor-saving innovation. Uh, we invented you know, tractors to replace human muscular power uh, assembly lines to eliminate uh, re uh, repetitive artisanal work and, and automate that. Uh, digital technology that uh, at, uh, you know, replaces uh, cumbersome, inaccurate human calculation. And uh, these innovations have worked. Uh, we don't dig ditches any longer by hand. We don't pound tools out of wrought iron. Uh, we don't do bookkeeping with actual books. Uh, and yet, um, over time, we've not run out of work so far. Uh, and so it's useful before we talk about what the future holds to think about how we got here and why ha we have not run out of jobs uh, so far, despite all this labor-saving automation. I'm going to argue that there are three reasons, um, uh, uh, and hopefully I'll be doing them in terms of increasing uh, unfamiliarity to you. So the first one uh, is simple human insatiability, uh, never get enough. Uh, so to illustrate that point, here's a picture of the Caven family of California and all their material possessions uh, in uh, 1985 is a wonderful photograph taken by Peter Menzel, who also does these for other countries. And you can see looking at all these belongings, and, and I remind you, this is 35 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, you can see that I'm sure they didn't, I'm sure they thought they had mostly necessities, but if you look at the number of bicycles and bookshelves and lamps and televisions and, and so on, uh, there's an incredible amount of belongings in this household. And if you were to look at a middle uh, income American household today, I'm sure it would have two or three times as many belongings. Um, and so uh, one thing that illustrates is that as we get wealthier, our perceived needs rise. Uh, people consume roughly in proportion to income. They don't save more as they get wealthier, at least as countries get wealthier, they don't save more. And so uh, all of that consumption for goods and services and experiences and, and healthcare and so on creates work. So we tend to create work for one another as we get wealthier because we don't run out of material needs. That's one reason. A second reason is um, people often think about automation or computerization as, as eliminating work, and it certainly does some of that. Um, but simultaneously, it often gives us tools uh, that improve the work that we do rather than eliminating it. 
So let me illustrate that with some examples. Um, you know, pneumatic nail guns uh, make roofers far more productive. They can do more roofing uh, in the course of a day than an individual could do uh, without power tools. And that makes them more productive and also more valuable, right? That raises their wages. If they could accomplish half as much in a day, they would probably be paid about half as much. Or, uh, you know, the incredible battery of uh, diagnostics tests available to uh, doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners doesn't eliminate the need for medical labor. It actually increases it. Right, it makes those people more productive. It increases the range of things that can be diagnosed and then treated. And so these are complements, uh, not substitutes, for uh, medical labor. Or, uh, you know, CAD and design tools used by architects and engineers allow people to, you know, design and render buildings and perform calculations. Um, this doesn't just save time; it allows for uh, more creative, uh, more experimental, uh, you know, more uh, a greater variety of ideas and designs that would be feasible uh, if people were doing these things by hand or building prototypes. Or uh, electronic tools like the ones we're using here allow uh, educators uh, to hopefully make their, their uh, educational tools uh, you know, more cost-effective, more accessible, and ideally more interesting as well, more engaging. Right? So these amplify uh, education, they don't eliminate it. Or even if you're a long-haul trucker, uh, cloud-based routing software allows you to uh, go from place to place without ever carrying an empty load because uh, you can always figure out uh, where, where the next fractional load is that you want to pick up. So the point I want to make here is a lot of what technology does is actually make us better at what we do. Uh, if, you are of the, if you are in the good fortune to have a, you know, a professional technical or managerial job, uh, you know, people think, oh, technology has transformed my work. That's what they commonly say, but that's actually not true. What technology has done is transform the tools you use to do your work. Fundamentally, uh, what people are doing in those categories of occupations, uh, what academics do, what medical doctors do, what attorneys do, what market researchers do, what engineers do, they're accomplishing the same tasks and are producing the same outputs with better inputs and with better tools. So that's the second reason why uh, automation hasn't eliminated, that, eliminated us, or eliminated the need for our skills and expertise and judgment and creativity. Mm -hmm. um, the third, which I think is, is the least talked about, is um, we are constantly inventing new work. It's not just more of the same uh, done more efficiently. So let me illustrate this, and this draws on recent research I've been doing with Anna Solomons of Utrecht University and Brian Segmiller, who's a PhD student at the MIT Sloan School. So this shows you uh, the number of people employed in the U.S. labor force uh, in 1940, it's about 45 million of them. Um, this shows you, excuse me, this, this next bar, uh, sorry, uh, shows, um, shows you uh, that figure in 2018. This is the number of people employed in the U.S. labor force in 2018 doing jobs that were present in 1940. And what you can see is, wow, that's only increased by a little bit. But um, if you know anything about uh, population growth, and you, you'll realize that the U.S. labor force has tripled in this size, it's gone from about 50 to 150 million people. So what are the rest of the people doing? Well, the other two thirds are doing jobs in so-called new titles. And I'll explain in a minute what I mean by that, but new categories of work that weren't present in 1940. So about two thirds of all employment in the US today is in quote, new work. And that's a really important point. So in 1900, 40% of all US employment was in agriculture. At present, it's under 2%. That doesn't mean that people do 38% less variety of stuff. 
because there's all kinds of new activities that weren't present at that time. So it's not simply that automation has encroached us out of, you know, encroached into what we used to do and pushed us into a narrower sphere of activities. In many ways, it's helped us create new activities. And I'll be more concrete about that in a second. So here are some examples. So the U.S. Census Bureau, uh, every decade, you know, has to record uh, the census according to the Constitution, and people write, ask people to write in their industry and occupation. And then people, when they write them in, the Census Bureau looks up in volume. So here's the write-in. What code does this correspond to? When people start writing something in new they haven't seen before, they add it to this kind of catalog of occupational titles and industry titles. Not something that you would find in public use data, but it's an internal census document. So here are some of the things they picked up uh, over the last 80 years. So in 1940 automatic welding machine operators, uh, in 1960s, textile chemists, uh, controllers, remotely piloted vehicles, artificial intelligence specialists, they detected that as early as 2000, pediatric vascular surgeons. So you might look at this list and say, ah, I get it. These are people who you know, use the technology, design the technology, integrate the technology, sell the technology. It's all about the technology. Now let me point you to the second column. Um, these are also categories that were added uh, in those decades. Acrobatic dancer, pageant director, hypnotherapist, amusement part worker, drama therapist, sommelier. So let's be clear, you know, there have been sommeliers for at least as long as there's been in the Republic of France. But in the United States, there weren't enough of them to register with the Census Bureau into, until 2010. So, in fact, a lot of new work is in specialized uh, services that are, uh, you know, entertainment. They might be recreation. They might be health. They might be uh, counseling. Um, and they're not overtly technological. Like one of those in the list is clairvo uh, clairvoyant. It was what was one that was added around 1970. Uh, as far as I know, there hasn't been a lot of technological progress in clairvoyance, uh, and yet uh, it becomes more popular over time. So just to show you what this looks like, um, let me just put these together. Um, if you look in, this is these are 12 occupations that are exhaustive and mutually exclusive that discover, to cover all the U.S. economy, ranged roughly in order from lowest paying farming and mining to highest paying managerial work. In 1940, you can see that about uh, almost 40% of all jobs were either in production work or in, in farming and mining. As of today, a tiny bit are in farming and mining. The absolute count of people in production has fallen, even though the employment labor force has tripled. And a lot of the work now is found in professional and managerial work, in clerical work, and in low-paid personal services. And you see from the red bars, a lot of that work is new work, work in those titles that were not present in 1940. Okay, so, so, the, so just to summarize what I've said so far, uh, it's important to understand why we so far haven't eliminated work. And uh, the three key, the key reasons I think are one, the insatiability, Two, the wet fact that the technologies allow, give us better tools that complement us, don't just substitute us. And the third is that we're constantly inventing new things as a function of both new technological possibilities, as a function of rising wealth, which creates new demands, and just sheer human creativity, which is uh, fairly inexhaustible. So does that mean the work of the future will take care of itself and we can just end the conversation here? No. <laughs> uh, so um, a concern is... Uh, that the quantity of jobs does not necessarily equate with the quality of jobs, and there can be real distributional problems, uh, even with a lot of growth. So this figure shows you the evolution. Uh, first of all, this purple line uh, is the evolution of U.S. productivity and output per hour of work between 1948 and 2018. So you can see that output per hour has risen uh, by 250% uh, since this time period. Um, this blue line represents uh, average compensation, so taking up all the wages paid to workers divided by the number of workers. Um, 
And you can see that's also risen. And then the red and green lines effectively correspond to median compensation, the, what is paid to the worker who is paid above 50% of all workers and below 50% of all workers, the person right at the middle. So what I want you to see is from 1948 to 1973, roughly from the end of the Second World War until the first oil crisis, these lines grew in lockstep. Productivity rose really fast. Average wages paid rose really fast. The median wage rose really fast. After the mid-1970s, there was a flatlining of all these things. And then starting around 1980, you see this incredible divergence. So productivity continues to rise, not as fast as it did in the first three decades, but it continues to rise at a pretty good clip. Uh, relative to all of human history, it's incredible because you know, we would go millennia without productivity rising. Um, average also rose a good amount, though not as fast. And the gap between these actually represents a fall in labor share of national income. But the real thing is this flatlining of the median the typical worker did not share much in this rising productivity. So although output per hour rose about 80% from 1973 to 2018, the median rose about 12%. Now, so some of you may already be thinking, you know, Otter is missing the picture here. He's not counting the value of Google and Facebook and all these unpriced services. Everyone knows GDP is a lousy measure, blah, blah, blah. And that's all true. However, those, that mismeasurement would affect my median my average, and also my productivity per hour. So if I were to, so let's say I'm missing all those. If I were adding them in, all these lines might move up, but the gap between them would be relatively constant. So there's no reason to think that this divergence is uh, some kind of measurement artifact. And let me say, this divergence is not unique to the United States. This shows you uh, from a OECD data, the change in the ratio of median and mean wages. So the gap between them effectively between 1995 and 2013 as the longest consistent series uh, you can find. So here's the US, right? And uh, we lead the world uh, in the growth of this, of this gap. <laughs> uh, uh, but even if we look, for example, in, in the UK or Great Britain, as they want to call it, uh, you know, this gap is also growing. So in almost all countries, almost all industrialized economies, the, the top has taken off relative to the median, right? The average has risen relative to the median. I'm driven by the top. Um, but there's enormous variance across them. So in France, almost nothing has happened. In Germany, a little more. In Great Britain, more still. And the U.S., uh, even more than that. Okay. Well, you might say, well, how is that possible for the mean and the median to diverge so much? Well, uh, one way, oh, sorry. All right. I, that's not what I was going to say. So let me say, so let me say there's a um, let me just change that transition. So in contrasting these two eras, the first period I showed you from kind of the end of the Second World War until around mid-1970s, and then from kind of 1980 to present, you can think of this as being, a, you can sort of roughly split those in half. So in the first three post-war decades, I think there are three beneficial forces at play. One, of course, is very rapid productivity growth following on the war and all the investments that were made during the Second World War and in the decade leading up to that. The 1930s was actually an incredibly inventive decade, although people were uh, not doing that well on average. Second was uh, changes in technology and occupational structure worked. They created kind of a, a tailwind towards building a middle class. So the growth of office work and high productivity production work and some managerial work that didn't require elite levels of education, that didn't require a four-year college degree. Those are growing rapidly and making high, highly paid, relatively secure work available to people uh, without uh, uh, elite levels of education. And the third was strong egalitarian institutions, effective labor unions, meaningful minimum wage laws uh, in the United States, an expansion of civil rights, of job standards, and the social safety net. All these things kind of worked in, in unison to kind of, uh, you know, 
turn a lot of this productivity into shared prosperity. So for example, this shows you US household income growth by uh, quintiles of the household income distribution from the lowest fifth to the highest fifth plus the top 5% between 47 and 73. And you can see these are all growing at about the same rate. Now I wanna emphasize 2% growth for the top 5% is a lot more dollars than 2% growth for the lowest fifth of earners. <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, they're all growing in proportion, meaning they're proportionally not spreading out. Here's the same figure for, oh, sorry, once again. Uh, so in, in the second period, this uh, the area from uh, 1973 forward, I think there are, there are three countervailing forces at play. One is decelerating productivity growth. That matters some, not as much as other factors. The second is the kind of hollowing out of middle-skilled non-college jobs, the shrinking of production, office and administrative jobs, um, uh, the growth of kind of elite jobs, of high education, high pay, professional, technical, and managerial jobs. That's not a problem onto itself. That's great if you can get them. And simultaneously, the growth of low education, low pay, personal services, which I'll say more about in a minute. And um, in the same period, weakening labor market institutions. So in the U.S., but also in the U.K., uh, shrinking labor unions. In the U.S., uh, eroding minimum wage and near irrelevance. Uh, a complete stasis of, of progress on uh, civil rights laws, job standards, and social safety net. Those things basically stop evolving in the United States after 1980. Uh, uh, you know, driven in many ways by uh, ideological commitment to the idea that they're not a good thing. And just contrasting these two eras, right, you can see uh, household income growth in the second era is just incredibly skewed towards the top. And of course, for the top to grow that fast, other parts have to shrink, <laughs> not grow so fast, because if there's only a finite amount, and it's a lot more dollars to grow the top or the highest fifth than it is to grow the bottom fifth, for example. Okay. Um, so uh, here's another uh, two more aspects of this, or one more aspect of this is uh, part of this uh, change is this incredible divergence by earning by education level. So these show you real index hourly wages from 1963 to 2017 of US adults um, by sex, and then at five levels of education, high school dropout, high school grad, some college, college grad, greater than college. You can see that throughout uh, this period, people with graduate degrees have seen just continuous and robust earnings growth. People with four-year college degrees have, have maintained, held their own, and, and it's risen somewhat, uh, perhaps not as much as you'd expect. For people without four-year college education in the United States, things have been relatively bleak. For those, for men with some college or below, earnings appear to be lower in 2017 than they were in 1981. For women, the story is more favorable in that things are, there, there's less downward uh, movement, but the growth of inequality is remarkably high. So uh, this is actually a, a, an incredible change and, and changes in returns to education are a big part of the growth in overall earnings inequality. Here's the other aspect of this that goes along with that story. This again shows you those occupations ranked from low to high. I've left out agriculture because it's so small at this point, but from 1980 to 2015, you can see this growth of low pay jobs uh, held primarily by workers without college degrees <coughs> and high pay jobs held primarily by workers with college degrees. And then this decline of production and office work, a lot of which has to do with technology and secondarily with trade uh, that has taken a lot of the routine codifiable tasks accomplished in those jobs and turned them into software where they can be done by computers. That's much harder to do in a lot of these personal services because they require dexterity, they require sightedness, they require common sense, they require uh, flexibility. Now you might say, well, if they require all that stuff, why aren't they better paid? <laughs> well, um, an important part of the answer is those basic skills are an abundant supply. 
most people who are of good health, sound mind and body can do those things. They can clean buildings, they can serve food, uh, they can, uh, you know, check, work at a checkout, at a checkout counter. And so although you can have, we have lots of those jobs and they're growing, they don't tend to grow very fast in pay because the set of skills to do them is not specialized relative. For example, if there's a growth in demand for medical doctors, uh, you can't get a very fast supply response, takes 10 years to produce a doctor. So wages will tend to rise. Okay, um, and I want to say this polarization that I'm speaking of here is not unique to the United States. So uh, this shows you the, the red bar is the elimination of middle skill jobs or the contraction and the blue and green are the growth of low and high skill jobs. And in, again, and this is work from uh, Husmaning and Sal Salomons in 2014, um, this is uh, found throughout industrial life, throughout the OECD and the UK is uh, certainly in no sense immune to the same phenomenon. So we see this in many places. Okay, so now I've kind of set the picture and I now want to sort of talk about what has gone wrong, um, what, what has gone right, and what does the future hold, putting all these pieces, uh, trying to uh, integrate all these, these thoughts. So first, um, what has gone wrong? Um, I think there are three primary causes. One of them is uh, the shifting locus of innovation, the change in where and what technology is doing and how it's being used. Um, so uh, I mentioned, uh, let me skip this slide. I mentioned earlier this sort of growth of, of, uh, of a work by skill level, by, sorry, by occupation. So let me break that down for you a little more. This is uh, work, new work and existing work done by non-college educated workers between 1940 and 1980. And, you, and the blue bar is, is the stock of existing work. The red bar is the flow of new work and new titles being created. And, be, and in this period, most non-college workers in construction, transportation, production, and clerical work, middle skill, middle paid jobs. And the growth of new work is also in those areas. In fact, a lot of it is growth in clerical work. If we look in the next four decades, 1980, 2018, you can see most non-college workers are still in these middle categories of construction, transportation, production, and clerical, but most of the growth of new work is not. A lot of it is in low paid personal services. And it's not occurring in these areas. Some of it's occurring to the right, thankfully. But what that means is the quality of new job opportunities is hollowing out. And uh, people are being pushed to the tails, particularly to the lower tails, if they don't have a college degree. If we do the same figure for people with a college or higher education, you can see in the earlier period, uh, a lot of the growth of new work is in professional technical and professional managerial work, also in office work. Uh, and, uh, and then if we look in the next four decades, it becomes even more concentrated at the top, more specialized. That's good if you have those skills. And notice, by the way, much less new work being created in clerical and men. And by new work, I don't just mean more jobs. I mean new and different jobs, right? So the locus of new work creation has, has changed. Um, so, uh, and, and I want to emphasize that new work doesn't happen automatically. It, it often flows from innovations that we create. The, where innovation is occurring is where a lot of the new work occurs. Part of the reason a lot of the new work has shifted towards these highly specialized occupations is it's in information industries. It's, it follows, flows from the information age that we've been living in. But it also follows from the fact that the government has stepped back from its role in directing where innovation occurs. So, you know, in uh, the 1950s, um, the U.S. Uh, federal government funded about four out of every 10 R&D dollars spent in the U.S. Uh, at present, uh, it's less than one in four. And, um, and that means the government doesn't have a role in directing where this R&D occurs. 
Uh, and the private sector has stepped up a lot. But these things should be thought of as complements, not substitutes, because the federal government usually does the kind of primary research and the uh, private sector does things that are closer to commercialization. And, you know, the, there's lots of wonderful innovation that occurs in the private sector. I know, means have no intention of deriding that. But there's no reason to think that private sector innovation will be directed towards things that are uh, most socially beneficial. Uh, they're going to be directed towards things that are most profitable, and that may be fine, but there's no reason to think those things are well aligned. When the government, you know, the government, uh, you know, invests a lot in, uh, in medicine and in health in ways that it's actually hard to profit on, or uh, many of the early stage information industries, or even during the space race in the 1960s, the federal government put a, a lot of money into science education, right? So uh, these things are directed. They don't just occur autonomously. Okay. The second thing, and I'll, I'll be much briefer, what else has gone wrong? <laughs> well, um, you know, we've in, been in an era of really rapid globalization, especially over the last two decades, especially uh, corresponding to China's incredibly rapid growth. This has been hugely beneficial for the world. Not only has it brought hundreds of millions of Chinese out of abject poverty, um, but it's really grown the, the size of the world middle class. It's created prosperity through Central and South America, uh, caused investment in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, you know, so many, many good things about it. But it has happened fast and it's been, uh, uh, and that rate of change is challenging uh, for any country or for any country's workers. In the United States, after China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, uh, you know, assisted by the United States, its share of U.S. consumption effectively uh, rose from about 2% to about 6%. Uh, U.S. manufacturing fell by 20 to 30% uh, in the ensuing years. And uh, that was not a coincidence. Um, those things are connected. Now, for those of you who know the numbers, you might say, well, come on, it's a few million manufacturing workers. You have 150 million U.S. workers, like get over it. Uh, however, uh, that would be true if manufacturing were kind of in every town, just like drugstores and grocery stores. So we just have a few fewer people working at those. But that's not how it looks at all. Manufacturing is extremely geographically concentrated. It occurs in a few places, and those places that are doing it are concentrated not in all of manufacturing, but just in a few industries. Right? They're making furniture and fixtures, or they're making yarn spinning, or they're doing poultry processing, etc. And in those areas, they were pretty well cleaned out uh, by the collapse of industry that happened very fast. So, you know, uh, I, I just you know, you can look, for example, in Martinville, Virginia, which uh, was a uh, made a lot of uh, furniture. And you can see that the percent of working age adults in manufacturing fell from 45% to 13%. Uh, and in the same period, the percent of adults that were working fell from 73% to 53%. So places didn't bounce back quickly. I could give you other examples. West Hickory is one that Paul Krugman writes about often if you, if you read Krugman's columns. Okay, so globalization is beneficial, but treating it as a, in a laissez-faire manner and not expecting that there will be adaptational challenges coming from rapid change is a huge mistake. And, uh, you know, anyone who's, uh, you know, spent time in the UK knows this well. Uh, and if you go to Manchester, you can see how many uh, decades, if not centuries, it took, more than a century, to recover from uh, the detritus of the uh, downturn of British industry. The third point is institutional erosion. Uh, and these are both sins of omission and commission, things done actively and things done passively by not doing anything. Uh, one way that can be seen is by the decline of labor unions. So the U.S. and U.K. really stand out here. The U.S. because we've always had low unionization rates, but they fall into near irrelevance. It's about 7% of private sector workers. In the U.K., the decline has been incredibly dramatic. Um, and uh, this is um, 
this is a, uh, you know, this I, labor unions have challenging problems that certainly I would not defend the way the uh, collective bargaining structure in the United States. But you could have too much of it. You could have too little of it. Arguably, at this point, we have too little. Another example is the federal minimum wage. <clears throat> so the U.S. has had a minimum wage since the 1930s. Uh, the, uh, in 2019, the real value of the federal, U.S. federal minimum wage was um, the same level approximately as it was in 1950. So that's remarkable, given that you know, output per hour has risen uh, by, more, by 200% in that time. The fact that the lowest paid worker is still supposed to be ma- making the same thing in real dollars that they made 70 years earlier is kind of startling. And, uh, and uh, what that means is it doesn't do anything to hold up the floor of the U.S. wage distribution anymore. In most places, it's almost non-binding. Whoops. Um, and uh, one consequence of that is real differences in the type of, in the compensation that low paid workers receive across the globe. So um, this compares purchasing power adjusted hourly earnings of low educated workers in 2015 uh, across countries. So here is the United States at 1033 an hour. Uh, here's uh, Norway and Denmark at, you know, 21 and 25. And you might say, okay, you know, the U S is not, uh, is not Scandinavia. Let's not make that comparison. Um, but, uh, if you could compare us, for example, uh, to the UK uh, or to our neighbor to North Canada, <laughs> where workers uh, make a third more per hour at McDonald's, I assure you they're not a third more productive. Uh, that reflects institutional choices. All of these countries have faced the challenges of globalization, of technological change, uh, and the same set of pressures uh, that the US and the UK have, but they've responded differently. And those institutional differences matter for the way that productivity growth has or has not translated into growth throughout the distribution. Okay, um, so you might say, well, wasn't there some benefit to all this inequality? Like, don't we get something out of that, right? So, you know, when you let the market work, uh, don't we get, uh, you, know, uh, you know, sure, it may be kind of ugly and messy, but, you know, we grow faster, more people work, we have more dynamism, et cetera. Well, um, you can look at this in three ways. One is you can look at it in terms of labor force participation. This compares labor force participation of men and women across uh, OECD countries. You can see that the U.S. has very little to brag about here. (laughs) Here's the labor force participation of men. Uh, Here's labor force participation of women. Uh, The U.K. doesn't have a lot to brag about here either, but the U.S. is actually worse. Um, So certainly our, our free markets are not creating full employment, despite the fact that we have low minimum wages. What about economic mobility? Well, this shows you the relationship between uh, inequality at a point in time and intergenerational mobility, meaning the likelihood that a child goes from rags to riches. You might hope that countries that are more unequal will be more dynamic, and so you'd have more intergenerational mobility. But just the opposite appears to be the case. The U.S. is a high inequality, low mobility country, as is the U.K., by the way. So, you know, my, my Harvard colleague, Raj Chetty, likes to say, if you want to realize the American dream of going from, you know, uh, a, a rags to riches from childhood to adulthood, you should go to Canada. That's where you're more likely to experience it than in the United States. Okay. Um, I'll finally say that uh, the U.S. has not grown faster uh, despite all that, nor has the U.K. for that matter. All right. So let me, um, let me now turn to my final remarks. I'm running, I don't want to take too much time. I want to leave time for questions. So where will the work of the future come from? So um, I've talked a lot about where it's come from in the past. Is the future, I've said, look, a lot of the work we do now didn't exist, uh, you know, uh, uh, 80 years ago. Where is it going to come from going forward? And should we be scared about the momentous technological changes we're seeing in front of us? 
And I want to make, a, you know, summarize in, in a sentence, uh, a kind of key takeaway of our, our 100 page task force report, which is that the mo- momentous impacts of technological change are unfolding gradually. So two words there, momentous, they really are a big deal. Uh, the second being gradually, they're happening in calendar time, not at light speed. So autonomous vehicles, if you were reading the press five years ago, you would be might well be expecting that we would, no one would be driving a car anymore, neither commercially or personally. It would, they would all be driving themselves. That hasn't occurred. It will occur. It'll occur over 20 or 30 years after we rebuild a whole lot of infrastructure. Industrial robotics, amazing technologies, had a big, big effect in auto manufacturing and some heavy industry. But if you read the case studies in the work of the Future Task Force, you'll see it's a very slow, cumbersome process. You have to retool not just you can't just fire a person, hire a robot. You have to rebuild your assembly line to use robots well. And it's a challenge. We'll get there, just not that quickly. Uh, intelligent supply chains. Uh, Amazon would be an example of that, world's most sophisticated supply chain. Amazon is now the second largest employer in the United States uh, because demand for its services is growing much, much faster than it can automate. Eventually, it will be smaller, but it's not now. Um, I could go on. The main thing I, point I want to make here is These are marvelous technologies. They will change the way we work. They will change uh, our wealth by increasing it. Uh, They will help us reorganize society. But there's no evidence yet that they are changing things so fast or so dramatically that they are altering the trajectory of job creation. We are not running out of work. Uh, We are changing the jobs that we create and that has challenges and especially that polarization but it's not the challenge of, of the end of work per se. The real challenge is not the quantity on this side, but the quality of jobs as we see here. Okay, um, so let me just say, and I'm, I'm gonna conclude the hauling of the US labor market that I was talking about and which has happened in the UK is not, though not as large as a degree was not inevitable. Um, productivity growth decelerated, but rising inequality played a much larger role than slowing productivity growth in the stagnation of the median. That's a question of distribution, not of the size of the pie, it's the size of the slices. Technological change was a headwind against middle-skill job creation in the last 40 years, but many countries face similar forces without creating the extremes of inequality. Only in the U.S. did polarization erode job quality and median wages so severely. So that was uh, not a necessity. Um, Third, uh, a lot of the institutional change that we've talked about really reflects ideology. Federal minimum wages in the U.S. were allowed to fall to new irrelevance because uh, Republican Congress members thought they should be, that they should never have been there in the first place. Uh, private sector labor unions met rising employer hostility, and the federal agency that oversees that uh, you know, decided to defang itself. Um, the stasis that the U.S. has seen on job standards, social safety net protections, modernization of labor market institutions for the changing structure of work and families, that's an act of, you know, of omission of just not moving that ball forward. I mean, it's, it's actually amazing in the United States. We haven't had a constitutional amendment, you know, in five decades, uh, actually a little bit longer than that. I think it's actually about six decades. In the first, you know, uh, 150 years of the Republic, we amended the constitution 26 times. Somehow we then decided it was sacrosanct. It reflects the inability to make social progress. It's actually, it's, it's, it's remarkable. So, um, institutional innovations need to complement technological innovations. These involve investing and in innovating in skills and training. Um, I'm just going to, in the interest of time, not go through these slides. They involve uh, ensuring that productivity gains translate into better quality jobs, as I mentioned. Uh, and they mean, um, sorry, 
continuing to in, expand and shape innovation. Innovation is our friend, not our enemy here. We need to raise productivity and we need to direct it in the areas where it's most useful uh, to get the most out of it. So, you know, probably less in chatbots and more in healthcare, for example. So um, let me conclude. I asked this question, where will the work of the future come from? Well, the answer is that it is ours to invent. Uh, it is a mistake to think that it is preordained what will arrive and we just have to try to predict it. Uh, we actually have to shape it. We are the people who decide what the future will look like. We collectively, I don't mean we the people on your Zoom video right now. Um, if we deploy existing te new technologies into existing labor uh, institutions, we will get the same problematic results. We are not on a good trajectory, not for technological reasons, but for institutional reasons. And there's a palpable fear of the future. That's why we're having this conversation. And I would argue it's a consequence of the divergence between innovation and labor market opportunity. It's not because of the innovation itself. It's because we have had so much innovation with so little shared prosperity. When people say, I'm afraid a robot's going to eliminate my job, that's not a statement about robots. That's a statement about capitalism, <laughs> right? Uh, and I, you know, believe me, I'm a free market economist, but uh, I understand uh, that these there are real uh, uh, risks to this. Um, simultaneously, we should reject false trade-offs between economic growth and strong labor markets. There's no evidence that weak labor markets make for strong growth. Uh, everything we've seen is when things are working well, these go well together. And in fact, this political support that's needed for to adopt technological change and to embrace change requires people to have a sense of security, which requires strong labor markets. These things are complements. The majority of today's jobs, as I've already stressed, had yet to be invented a century ago. So the job of the present is to invest, to build a future that we ourselves want to inhabit and we want our children to inhabit after us. And that's where the work of the future will come from. Okay, I'll stop there. Uh, welcome uh, Judy's uh, comments and uh, thoughts, and then your questions. David, that was fantastic. I, I myself have got a ton of questions. I can see already that the questions are lining up in the Q&A. Um, but Judy gets the first crack at this. Judy, it is great to have you with us. So David has an awfully interesting, uh, really interesting take on technology in the workplace in the U.S. and beyond. You have been writing about this subject for some time. What do you make of it? <laughs> That's polite of you. Many decades, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, well, will I start? I mean, I was so pleased, actually, when Peter asked me to be uh, a discussant um, this evening. And, and David hasn't been able to see me, but I've been kind of nodding throughout the talk, you know. And this is very rare for me because as a seasoned sociologist of work and technology. I've been, I can't tell you how many panels I've been on on technology at the future of work, right? And I'm always on with these economists who've got these algorithms, you know, telling me that this or that specific task is going to be eliminated by an amazing robot or AI and there'll be very few jobs left. And the nice ones say, let's just have a universal basic income, end of story, right? That's been the typical um, you know, panel I've been on for years and years and years. So it's a complete sort of delight to hear your fantastic talk. And um, I'm going to start by just talking about some of the things I agree with, because, you know, just to, you know, to, to kind of underline them, if you like, for the audience. Um, I've just got kind of four points and then I'll uh, add some, some emphasis of my own. I mean, for a start, what's wonderful is that your work is historical, right? You know, economic history, I'm a, I'm, um, 
I'm passionate about. I mean, I started work on the impact of technology on work during the 1980s microelectronic revolution. And I believed, like many Marxists at that time, influenced by Harry Braverman and other people, that technology would simply de-skill um, you know, industrial workers, that we'd have paperless offices, that it'd be the end of white-collar administrative work. And as David says, you know, if you have a historical lens, you, you know, we've been here so many times before with these grand general predictions about the revolutionary impact of technology on work. And whether they're utopian or more commonly dystopian, um, we really need to get past this crude kind of, you know, dichotomous debate, which you've done um, beautifully this evening and you do in your work. Um, importantly, this kind of dichotomous debate is really premised on technological determinism. And critiquing this idea has been central to my work and my colleagues in science and technology studies for several decades. It's really been central to them. And in all this work, we've been arguing that technology is not an autonomous, inevitable driver, but rather is shaped by social, political, and economic forces. But human choices are embedded in the very design, if you like, in the material architecture of technology, whether it's hardware or software. So I'm so glad, again, that David stresses this. I mean, you're an honorary sociologist of work, I have to say, you know. Um, and I like very much the line in your report, which I echo in all of my work, that institutional factors affect what technologies are invented, how they're applied and distributed. Um, thirdly, as a sociologist of work and technology, um, we actually study workplaces, you know, and the complex processes of technological innovation and adoption in specific organizations. And once you do that, you learn very quickly that technological diffusion and implementation always needs to be understood in context. As its impact is highly predictable, it hardly ever works out according to plan when you're actually looking at a workplace going through technological change. And as you say, diffusion and implementation can often take decades. It's a continual process. And, and, I, and I feel there's may, way too much focus really on the new and glitzy and not enough awareness of older technological systems that are still in the process of being adopted. And we have a, a scandal at the moment about a, a post office IT um, system that I, you know, maybe someone will raise in the discussion. Um, which is, you know, the implications of which this faulty IT technology are still being worked through decades um, later. Um, so I really like the fact that your work is so much focused on sectoral analysis. I mean, you didn't say that much this evening, but in your report, it's very much looking at specific sectors and technological change, whether it's in healthcare and um, insurance. And by doing that, you, you avoid the common generalizations made by mainstream economists about the impact of technology on the whole economy as if it was all of one piece and determinate. And finally, as someone who did her PhD on industrial democracy and workers' cooperatives, um, and I well remember in Britain, the Bullock Report of the Wilson Labor government in the 1970s that was really advocating um, worker participation on management boards. I'm glad that you called for more workers' representation and voice and that you stress so much that really it's been the demise of trade unions that's been such a major cause of wage polarization. Um, and I also, of course, like that you advocate moving away from a shareholder kind of capitalism to a stakeholder capitalism. And maybe we could talk a bit more about that. 
Um, like David, I'm very concerned about the quality of some of the newly created jobs, the poor pay and conditions of what we now talk about as the gig economy or in my circles, platform work. Uh, we, all, we often talk about that, such as Uber or Deliveroo drivers. And again, I think it's very important to always stress that there's nothing, nothing inevitable about this. The vast profits made from this kind of work need not necessarily go to the owners of the platforms. And platforms don't even need to be owned by huge corporations. I've heard some very sort of good nascent discussions about setting up platforms run by workers themselves. Um, and in the meantime, as you stress, we really need to regulate the decent working conditions for these kinds of new jobs. Okay, let me just add a couple of points of, you know, go on and just add a couple of points of emphasis and ask you to respond to them, just sort of add to what you've said already. Both of us in our work very much stress the need for shaping innovation through policy and the important role of the state or government in funding R&D. But I just wanted to mention another source of distortion of both technology and, and the resulting labor market. Much has been made of the enormous growth of high quality jobs created by technology in entirely new fields, which you've stressed a lot in your graphs, such as data science and AI. Yet these fields are already highly segregated by gender and race. I'm currently, um, as uh, Peter said, leading a project at the Turing Institute on the lack of diversity in artificial intelligence uh, work. And whether you look at Google or Facebook, or if you look at the figures on researchers who contribute to these very sort of famous um, global conferences on machine learning, what you find that it's dominated by one demographic, young white men, who design our machines and arguably make technology that's most effective for themselves. My point um, here is always that this lack of diversity is not only an equal opportunity issue about fairness in terms of access to jobs, but that it's also a matter about how we live and who's designing um, the world that we live in. I'm sure you're, you're aware and this audience is aware of the recently highly publicized instances of unconscious racial and gender bias embedded in algorithms based on machine learning. And I'm thinking here of things such as automated recruitment systems, facial recognition, the criminal justice system, credit scoring, all of these things. But too rarely the point is made that actually if we included a wider range of perspectives and experiences uh, in this work, in the design work, we, would, we might get, and I, I'm sure we would get better and more inclusive technologies. And as, as you mentioned, I think it would kind of refocus us on um, thinking of technologies to solve really pressing social problems rather than so much of it being on attractive apps, virtual assistants like Siri or Cortana or uh, various of these other things. I mean, some, in some of my own work, I've been very concerned to kind of expose the role of Silicon Valley in capturing our vision of the future with promissory discourse. You know, this overblown rhetoric about the wonders of AI and robotics, as if winning a game of chess or AlphaGo is the equivalent of human intelligence. And so I think we really need to puncture a lot of the marketing hype about the wonders of AI and demand more citizen participation in the kinds of science and technology that we get and the kinds of jobs that will result from it. 
Um, now to my inevitable uh, last question, which is, uh, of course, what lessons have we learned from COVID? Um, I myself am very struck by the how the pandemic seems to be changing our notion of what infrastructure means. And that somehow suddenly high-speed broadband now seems like a basic physical structure to the operation of society, such as building roads and bridges. Now, feminist economists have long argued that care should also be part of the infrastructure, from childcare to paid leave, to home and community-based services, that care is fundamental to enabling economic activity. Now, traditionally, when governments think about economic recovery, they usually talk about the building and construction industry, i.e. men's jobs, rather than the care economy for women's jobs. And I'm particularly raising this as during this period, we know that a lot of the homeschooling and unpaid work has been disproportionately um, shouldered uh, by women. So I was really intrigued and impressed that Biden's American job plan includes a 400 billion investment to expand uh, Medicaid coverage of home and community services for people with disabilities and older adults and to improve wages and working conditions for the nation's direct care workforce. So I'd love to know what you think about the job plan and in particular, whether you agree that care should be now considered part of the infrastructure, necessitating proper investment design and planning. Thank you. Great, David, why don't I just turn it over to you? Um, Great, you okay, to wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Uh, this, is, this is terrific. So yeah, I mean, in terms of shaping innovation, that you know, let me say, I think you, I sort of heard two major comments. One about the sort of COVID and care, and the other about sort of shaping innovation and diversity. And I, I do, th I you know, so I think this it is absolutely the case. The technology you get depends on who's making it and what they perceive as to the incentives. So I mean, there are sort of two issues there. One is who goes into the field and how that happens, right? So in the U.S., actually, I would say the field of artificial intelligence is dominated by men, not white men. Uh, the U.S., you know, to its credit, has a huge international diversity uh, of of people, but uh, but men, <laughs> and uh, and I think this is a this is a huge loss. And in fact, you know, as many know historically, computer science uh, was uh, you know in many ways pioneered by women, and many of the women who many of the people who were the original programmers were women. Uh, it was considered to be clerical work, uh, and then when it got sexy, uh, it was taken over by men. Um, the uh, and it is the case that the tools that people build reflect, you know, what they perceive the market to be and what their own interests are, right? So, you know, yes, it's well understood, you know, it's documented that, you know, facial recognition software, uh, you know, uh, is more accurate with Caucasians than with African-Americans, for example, or people with dark skin. Uh, it is the case that, the, you know, the, um, some of the, the algorithms for screening people for jobs or screening people for, you know, what criminal, uh, whether they should be given bail or parole, right? They're really, they're, they're uh, opaque. Uh, they, uh, and it's not clear they correspond to any notion of fairness <laughs> uh, and in many cases to a notion of convenience. And I have to say that I, I feel like many of those technologies could actually help us a lot because, you know, people are also, biased, unsystematic, uh, and, and harder to reprogram. <laughs> so people make all kinds of bad judgments when it comes to hiring, when it comes to criminal cases, when it comes to issuing credit. We have tremendous biases and imperfections, and we're not able to be aware of them or correct them very readily. 
by systematizing them, we can do them better, but we can also do them worse. Uh, and so it depends on uh, how carefully we, uh, you know, who's, who's engineering them uh, and what are the incentives, set of incentives they're facing and how much transparency and auditing is there around that. Um, so I, uh, yeah, so I, I think I'm uh, agreeing with what you're saying and I don't know the solution uh, full well, especially actually, I feel more clear about how you get, you know, for example, racial and ethnic diversity into these fields than gender diversity, only because racial and ethnic diversity is something that we have, uh, at least in the US, we have so underinvested and undercultivated. And of course, women are highly present in academia. They are, are you know, women are the majority of, of, uh, of tertiary students in most countries. Um, but the fields that they choose obviously are different and how we, and there are many barriers to that and how we fix that is something I, I look forward to understanding better. Um, let me then go to the second question. I'm not sure that was satisfactory answer to the first one, but it's the best one I got. Yeah, go ahead. Well, should I respond to that? Please was, do, sorry, yes, please. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, there were just so many things in that that I would like to respond to. Is that all right? Yeah. That's it. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, you know, you raise sort of many things, actually. I mean, I'm much more sceptical than you are about the sort of bias issue. I mean, I, you know, I've had arguments with, um, you know, lots of people who've written books about how automated decision-making is better than having judges drunk after lunch. You know, that's usually, you know, this is what I'm usually presented with is would you rather have an algorithm making a, you know, criminal justice thing or would you, would you rather have somebody who's tired in the afternoon? I think the, the problem is actually, which is why I sort of stress the puncturing of a lot of the belief in the wonders of the system, is that there just seems to be this kind of naive sense that somehow, you know, that these machines are somehow kind of neutral, objective, that they make better decisions than us, right? I mean, it's a completely different discussion to talk about a judge having the resources of this systematic data, and I'm all for that, and, and, and you would be too in terms of augmentation. But the problem is when this sort of naive belief that science and technology are making <clears throat> rational, intelligent decisions better than human beings. And why I raise, you won't know, David, but we're in the middle of this post office scandal, right? And it's about these workers who basically were, were criminalised, were, were running local post offices, and there was a Fujitsu IT system that had been used for years called Horizon. And for decades, right, um, all of the mistakes, you know, they were all um, considered to be thieves, but the mistakes were the machine, right? And, and actually, Fujitsu secretly knew there were lots of problems with the software. You know, this is often the case, right? Um, but actually, there was this belief that somehow the machine couldn't be doing the accounting. The software couldn't be wrong. The software knows how to do accounting. People are making errors. People are wrong. And I think this is much more often the case um, than is said, right, that we have a whole history of contracting out of IT services, you know, in the belief that they will do these jobs better. So I think we, we should need, we need to hang on to be very kind of critical about the notion of what these automated uh, decisions can do and can't, and that they shouldn't be left to make these decisions on their own. So that's sort of one thing. Um, the second thing, I mean, you raised so many things actually. I mean, the second thing is that, you know, my year in Silicon Valley, I was very aware um, that there were a lot of Indian programs programmers in Silicon Valley, right? But actually what I did see was an incredibly young workforce, right? That actually when I asked people, what's the average age in Facebook or something, I think it was 32 or, you know, that it is actually kind of 
predominantly young men and actually in, in positions of power, it's still predominantly sort of white men. And so it's a very sort of skewed set of priorities, I think, that are thought of. And I've written sort of amusing things as other feminists have about virtual assistants and, you know, why this, why such a focus on virtual assistants uh, rather than some better domestic technologies, sort of that sort of thing. Third thing, very quickly, because um, I want you to respond to the other thing, is that, you know, the problem of, of who's doing the tech and who isn't, I think isn't uh, simply a matter of choice, but it's very much a matter of hostile um, corporate cultures, right? And that, you know, I'm very, you know, and I work at the Turing, what we're trying to get at is actually looking at organisational culture and, and, and which groups of people feel comfortable in what kind of workplace organisational cultures and who doesn't, as opposed to the issue of kind of choice. Anyway, sorry, go over to no, you. No, 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 that, that's very helpful. Yeah, the, um, okay, yeah, we, as long, I would love to, you know, Respond, but I'm, I'm not give going to give you one last to... bite at the apple here, and then we're going to. No, open no, no, no. Up let a me... lot of questions. And yeah, then... no. Let me just yeah. respond quickly to the question about uh, COVID and infrastructure and so on. So, um, yeah. you know, so I think the the COVID economy, the COVID, you know, COVID experience has been transformational in many ways, some positive, some negative. Uh, you know, it's easy to see the like one of the negative sides. I think is that it's going to change the texture of cities, the amount of the amount that people go to offices, the amount that people will do business travel, and I think it's going to put a lot of pressure on a lot of the growth of low paid service work. And, and yeah. unfortunately you can say, well, those are lousy jobs. You know, isn't it good that we'll have fewer of them? And it's like, no, it's actually better to have too many than too few. Uh, Cause at least when you have too many, they're competing for workers uh, and having too few, it's just going to, you know, it's kind of the last opportunity, you know, so we need to create better jobs, not eliminate bad jobs. The, creating better jobs is, is mm -hmm. so I'm concerned about that. It has um, in other ways, it's been, you know, it's actually, you know, this is great that we're having this conversation. There's so much, so, so more people are participating online, I'm sure, than we'd be participating if we're doing this in person. Uh, so many good things will happen from this as well. Um, but it's changed, I think, you know, at least in the United States, I would say it's it's really been uh, changed people's perception of what is the role of the government, I think, and of this of the public, you know, of the social system in, you know, we, you know, the US, you know, spent has now spent more than 20% of you know, a national income, a annual national income on this crisis and insured workers, insured businesses, insured families, people who are not part of the unemployment system started receiving unemployment checks. Uh, you know, we ran this operation to produce vaccines with other countries. Um, and I, th I think it's revitalized this notion that actually there are many problems that only the government can solve. It's not that the government is always the problem. No, uh, no private sector institution could just say, hey, let's spend 20% of US GDP and hand it out, right? That only the government can do that. And so it's no, and it's so, yeah, the infrastructure of social insurance and of investing in people, right? I think, and so, you know, that, I, so the Biden administration has really picked up this ball. And I think it's recognized, right, that, you know, we, however you feel about the last four decades of the Reagan slash Thatcher revolution, right? And I, I wasn't a, a fan, but it had its benefits and it, it, we've taken that idea as far as it should go and, and arguably too far. And now is the moment to say, look, now we stopped investing, we let things run on their own and now we have to reinvest in ourselves, in our infrastructure, in our people, in care. Care work is incredibly important. It's the fastest growing category of employment. It's terribly paid in the United States. Uh, and, uh, and so why should all the people who do the care not be cared for? Uh, and it's going to be even more so. So I, I think we're at a inflection point, hopefully a constructive one. Uh, and so the COVID crisis has 
change people's perception of where we need to go from here. I, I believe at least some. Okay, I'll stop there. Thanks so much. Uh, let's take the rest of the questions. So that that's great. This is terrific, and I, I want to keep this conversation going. But first, I want to just to pick up on your point about how technology has increased the participation. We've got folks on the platform here who would probably not be here this this evening with us from Nigeria, Pakistan, Colombia, New Zealand, the United States, India, Panama, Costa Rica, Saudi Arabia, Portugal, Namibia, and Romania, as well as folks from the UK. So I wanna just welcome everyone. It's great to have you all here. There's a slew of questions. We've got about 30 questions in the chat box. I have questions, but I'm gonna hold mine back. I'm gonna start with, some of these are clustering. And, and one group of questions concerns the role of education going forward. And I know, David, that the report that Judy referred to, your report actually in the recommendations, has a, a, a fair amount to say about education going forward. So I'm gonna put two questions to you, but I really, this is for both of you. So from a year 12 student, so he's got, he's, he's got a stake in this, Ali Sam Nadigan, do you think these new jobs created will increase academic requirements leading into academic inflation for future generations, meaning inequality rises between those with jobs and those who drop out? And will there have to be a revolution in the style of schooling around the world? And just to pick up on that thread, we have a question here as well from uh, Theo Theodoro, who is with the Ministry of Education in Nigeria, who asks, should the work of the future be embedded into the education systems at both the secondary and the tertiary level? So I'd be delighted to hear both of you just kind of, you know, what you have to say about education and, you know, can education help blunt some of, and in what ways can it help blunt some of the the inequalities and the concerns that you've raised. David, we'll start. Sure. With you. Okay, great. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, education has been critical to helping us, you know, adapt and benefit from all the technological changes that we've created. We've totally changed the work that we do in the last hundred years. And if we hadn't changed our skill sets along with that, uh, many of us would not be able to do the work that is required. If we were as illiterate and enumerate as we were 100 years ago, many of us could do not do but anything but the most basic jobs. Um, we will continue to have to raise skill levels. However, where uh, the U.S. in particular is most deficient is not in uh, you know tertiary education. It's actually in uh, one primary K through 12 education, just preparing people for it. And then the other is that middle layer of people who are going to do skilled vocational work. People are going to do medical paraprofessions uh, or the trades uh, or, uh, you know, sometimes the care work or, uh, uh, and there we massively underinvest. And so the majority of people do not complete a four-year college degree. And yet that's where most of the dollars go. And for those who do not, there's not a well-ordered system for people to figure out you know, what do they need? What is the opportunity? What is the way to get it? Should I get it from the community college? Should I pay a private sector provider? Should I go online? But so um, I do think, uh, so So in coming back to the questions, um, we, uh, I do think high skill credentials will be extremely important and there will be more need for people with PhDs and technical degrees and so on. However, 
I also think there will be, we, there can be and will be good middle school jobs, but they will require skills beyond high school and people will need to make investments to get those. And we need to have good vocational systems or training systems that help people make those investments well. I do think in this case, the technology is really our friend in that education has been so gotten so expensive and it's so circumscribed by the need for everyone to be in the same place with you know, one instructor talking to 10 people uh, and so on. And, and all of those constraints are being lifted and education should get you know, more accessible, less expensive and a whole lot more engaging as we have tools like virtual reality and augmented reality that people can do hands-on work without actually, you know, being physically in the environment where that's occurring and so on. So there's, I I do think for once, you know, uh, we keep talking about education, but we don't innovate in education. (laughs) Uh, And now we can. So I'm optimistic about that. That doesn't mean everyone will take advantage of it. And this is always a challenge. If, If just putting information out there was sufficient, libraries would have ended all, you know, societal ignorance centuries ago. So uh, whether this will reduce inequality or not, I do not know. So go ahead and uh, hand it over to Judy there. I mean, I, sorry, I can I completely agree with you. Just sort of, I'd just like to add um, something to it at the other end. Would is just that you know often there's so much emphasis on on STEM subjects. You know, there's been this real shift. I know in, in sort of Britain and Australia, you know, of investment in science and technology and away from humanities and social sciences. And I just want to put in a plug that actually given um, how much we both stress that actually the future is unpredictable and although we're making it, it's not unpredictable on on its own, that it's important to have a sort of broad education. And, you know, some of the problems we're having actually with the kinds of technology we've got, I think are a direct result of a very narrow education. And, you know, at the moment, there's a big push to introduce ethics courses into computer science um, degrees, I know in Stanford and Harvard, but, you know, seems to me we could start much earlier of having a kind of an education that was a kind of broad education and a recognition that actually you can't design good science and technology without good social science skills and in interaction with social science, humanities, philosophy, all these other things. So I just wanted to kind of put in a bid for that. Yeah. And in fact, you know, work by David Deming of Harvard shows that, you know, a lot of the growth, growing high paid work is work that combines a lot of interpersonal skills with some technical skills. So, you know, being a good doctor is not just a matter of knowing disease, right? You need to work with patients. Same with being an attorney or, you know, many other jobs. In fact, you're translating between a body of expertise and uh, and, uh, people who you're serving, assisting, managing, leading. And so the goal should not just to be master a narrow skill set, but to be able to communicate, to work in a team, you know, to write <laughs> and yep. then, and then use those skills, hopefully apply to some expert domain. So um, a few different questions here. Um, uh, one from David Wood, chair of London Futurists. How will work change when automation and AI can replace, not just as at present, human muscle power, human routine thinking? but also human creativity, human effective skills, and specialist human dexterity. So hold that thought for a second. Um, it would be good to just get your thoughts about that. Um, and then there are a number of questions here um, that put the future of work in a kind of larger global and global south 
context. And there's one here from Andrew Lone that captures, I think, some of what's going on in these questions. What impact will demographic changes in China in the next few decades, and in particular, expected shortages of uh, cheap labor, labor have on the future of work elsewhere uh, in the world? And David, I mean, given that you've done so much work on the, on the China shock, kind of on the US side, this would be interesting for you to kind of pick up that thread as well. So two different questions there. Yeah, so, uh, so the first question from David Wood on what will happen when AI, you know, yeah. does creativity, affect, uh, dexterity. So I'm not as confident that that's going to happen yeah. as quickly. I do think AI is moving into real realms that previous procedural software did not, uh, because there are a lot of, you know, kind of judgments that combine many, many inputs in a rather non-precise way to make an evaluation. It should, you know, how much of this should be ordered, whether this product, what's likely to occur. And, you know, AI can do that in a way that people can do that. People, you know, AI isn't that great at it, but people aren't that great at it either. So, you know, there will be a lot more machines taking over judgmental tasks. Um, the challenge, you know, what we don't know is the degree to which this will complement or substitute, right? And, and some of it, you know, for example, uh, sometimes technology allows a very expert skill activity to be done by someone who has lesser expertise and in a better way, right? So for example, a lot of the diagnostic tools and information tools have allowed, you know, at least in the US have allowed, you know, have, have released the monopoly that physicians have over a lot of patient care and moved into nurse practitioners. That's really good, right? And in fact, many skills that start off as expert elite, right? Then you have a technology that works with a person with less, you know, uh, less elite training and able to do the work. So some of AI may actually lead to democratization of work for people who do repair or diagnosis, right? You actually having much better tools. So I don't know, I don't, I don't, so I, I don't know how quickly we'll get there. And I don't know what it means for a machine to do affect. Uh, it's like, you know, if I wanna watch a great, you know, football match, I don't actually wanna watch robots playing football, it'd be a different game. It's probably the fact that people are doing it that actually makes it count in its own way. So let me leave it there. I'm sure that's unsatisfactory to David. Uh, then on the question about demographics in China, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of the world is facing these demographic challenges throughout Asia as well. Um, I think it's going to be mostly a problem for those countries rather than for the rest of the world. Um, you know, one way countries respond to demographic challenges is through automation. Many of the most automated countries, the countries that use the most robotics are the oldest countries like Korea and Japan and Italy, actually. Um, and in some sense, that's good. You know, I actually think automation is going to help us with a lot of the problems we face from aging because it's going to allow us to, you know, enhance our, you know, make, keep our bodies working longer. We'll have exoskeletons uh, when our, you know, our, when arthritis sets in. Some more care work, not the emotional care work, but the physical care work could be better done by machines. If you've ever spent time in a, you know, a skilled nursing facility and so on, you see how challenging and tedious it is actually to care for people who just basic physical needs need to be taken care of. That could be done better. So uh, I think the demographics challenge is real. I think it's mostly a challenge, as, as I understand it, for the countries that are facing it rather than the countries that they trade with. But I may be missing an important insight that Andrew has. Let me pause there. 
Um, I could kick off actually um, picking up on the care robots issue, actually, which I, th I think is, I've, I've, again, I was at Stanford at a, at a conference on coding to care, and we had a, a great discussion about the extent to which we wanted technologies to do um, care work for the elderly um, and, and whether they could do that. And the consensus was, as you say, that in terms of sort of physical work, um, that was entirely a very good thing and very possible. But what nobody at this conference wanted was companion robots, yeah? Social robots, robots pretending to be kind of human beings. And kind of more generally, I would say that I'm even more skeptical than you are, as I, I think I indicated in my talk about the claims that are made for AI. And as you know, there's a discussion about whether this, you know, um, artificial intelligence, whether this is really intelligence, whether it's a very narrow form of intelligence, the fact that human intelligence is kind of embodied, is social, it's relational. Um, I just don't at, at all kind of buy into this notion. I mean, and and you know, what, what I think Silicon Valley has been very good at kind of presenting is kind of using words like machine learning, you know, learning as if it's a human learning, intelligence as if it's human intelligence, that all the time these metaphors are kind of used, this language is used to convince us that somehow these machines are becoming uh, like people. And actually when you sort of um, are face-to-face -face with um, often these things, I mean, I, I did some work on scheduling, on digital scheduling, and what I found, and I, I noticed you very much... Um, like that ghost work book too, is that actually, you know, people told me that, you know, the um, the calendar looked like it was being automated, but in fact, there were work, there were hidden workers, right, doing the work to make it look like it was working as well as it was working. You know, this is a sort of common thing and it is about the limits really of um, a, a lot of the new technology, you know, the, the sort of virtual technologies coming out. So in terms of the futurist, I would be very sceptical about um, the extent to which machines will be able to do these things. Yeah, I, I, the other thing I would say on that, and let me, and now I'll hit back here, is I feel like this is an area where we should all be less certain than we are. If you're extremely certain that the machines are going to do all these things, you should doubt yourself. If you're extremely certain you're not, you should also have some doubt uh, in the sense that they have you know, we were in an AI winter for decades. It is now an era where we don't have, we don't have a, we don't have a good map for the way this technology is going to advance. Because when we were talking about procedural programming, we understood how that worked. You could, it was very incremental. You had to first solve the problem. Then you had to break it down to tiny steps. Then you had to get a stupid computer to do it. that didn't understand what it was doing. Uh, and so that was a very slow incremental process. AI is because it, you know, learns or statistically develop, you know, induce, you know deduces patterns we don't know how quickly that can advance. So I, although I share Judy's skepticism a lot, I also have trained myself to not be too confident on this. I'm keeping my eyes open and withholding judgment. So David, I've got a question for, for you. And actually there's a, it's, it's US focused, but Judy, I think there's a UK version of this question also. And it has to do with the, the point about institutional innovation and ideology. I, I would like to get your thoughts really about the politics of automation in the United States. As you know, there's a, there's a growing body of research that suggests that the red, blue, urban, rural divisions that have become so commonplace in, in American national elections are due at least in part um, to spatial inequalities that accompany these, that are accompanying these trends in automation. It's true as well with globalization, but 
Um, and that, you know, that states and districts that are most heavily exposed to um, job market changes due to automation are the, you know, the ones that went disproportionately in 2016 for Trump and again in, in 2020, and that the reverse was true, that the gainers went for Hillary Clinton, the districts in the states, and in, in 2020 for, for Biden. So here's the kind of question or the puzzle in a way. Um, I mean, in a way you would think that the states and the districts that are hurt most by automation would be the ones that, you know, they have, they have disproportionate power actually, because so many of them are rural because of the particularities of the American electoral system, okay, this doesn't hold for the UK, um, that favors those states and districts. And in principle, they should be pushing back in the sense of they should be making, you would think they would be making this an issue, looking for funding, looking for support, educational retraining and so forth. But they are actually, I think it's fair to say, that's where the obstacle is. And that's where the counter pressure is. And so I, I guess the question is, in a sense, how do you, we get out of that box in the US? I mean, I'm asking you to put your, yeah, yeah. take your E52 hat off and put your E53 hat on, as if you're in the <laughs> political science department at MIT. <laughs> so E52, for those of you who haven't been to MIT, is where the economics department is located. E53 is where the political science department is located. Um, the, uh, uh, and the E60 is where the Sloan building is. Um, the, uh, the uh, so, um, okay, so first, you know, uh, so let, the subcomplication and you have to say, well, how do we even get into the situation? So one is, of course, the the, the most exposed states and districts have resp responded very strongly on trade, right? And you know, and you know, those that were affected by trade have reacted uh, politically rather violently to that, and Trump really capitalized on that. Um, so this, this raises, you know, two points. One is, of course, you can take public anger and you can channel it in many ways, right? So there's always a desire. So there's sort of two competing, you know gravitational axes of politics uh, when you're, you know, trying to create and one is the kind of rich poor divide and the other is the elite, uh, you know, the us them divide. Right. And so Democrats are always focused on the rich poor divide and Republicans are always like the us, which is the, you know, good working class white men and them, which is everybody else. And the Republicans have been very successful at taking the public anger and channeling into that second category. Um, but uh, so that's that's sort of the nature of populism. This is an underlying dynamic of, of politics in many countries. But I will say that over the last three or four decades, and, and Democrats, at least as much as Republicans, have embraced a view that higher education and global integration and technology will lift all boats, right? Bill Clinton talked about the bridge of the 21st century. And this was excess faith in a view it has lifted boats, but it's not lifted all boats. It's created a lot of wealth, but it's created a huge amount of inequality and narrowed horizons for many people who are not part of that. And an irony of a, you know, you could say, well, look, the US labor market is highly meritocratic. It hugely rewards skills. It really does. But that may not be a level of merit. Uh, we may not want a system that's so stratified on skill. We might want a system where more people are in the middle class if they, you know, are decent and work hard. And, uh, you know, they don't have to achieve elite. So I think people feel that the vision of the 21st century that they were sold in the 20th century mm. is not one that includes them. 
And they don't think that the government that got us into that situation is the one that's going to get us out of it. They feel like government used to be on the side of the working class, and now it's on the side of the elite. And I, I know I sound like, you know, I, that's not really my politics, but I can understand how people would reach that conclusion. Now, let me understand. You say, well, how do we get out of this? Well, I actually think what the Biden administration is trying to do is make a big push that involves reinvesting in skills and infrastructure in, and the infrastructure of care, the infrastructure of broadband, infrastructure, and, and the entire social safety net in a way it's, it recognizes, right? If it doesn't get the working class back, right? It's, you know, it's going to have like two years to do what it does and then it's done. And you, why you need to do this a big push is it needs to be effective enough that it creates its own momentum that it keeps going. You need to get people to say, actually, we need a new social contract. And, oh, this is working. The government can do this. And if so, I think that will change a lot of people's views. So we're at a very precarious moment. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, because we either people are either going to become increasingly nihilistic or they have to or they have to be you know really persuaded uh, that the government that got them into this can also get them out of that. Uh, so it's it's quite a challenging moment. Judy, what about on the UK side? I mean, the story, I mean, Blair sold a third way. It wasn't a bridge, but, you know, same basic idea. Um, and there's a lot of talk about leveling up to deal with the blowback and the resentment and the anger over here? Um, we're in a bit of a hole over here, as you know, politically. <laughs> we're all looking to the Biden package. I mean, I guess, you know, the only thing I can say on hopeful days is that there was a good discussion here as a result of the pandemic about what essential work is, you know, that suddenly there was much more recognised, you know, recognition that actually not only care workers but bus drivers and um railway, you know, that, that there was a whole kind of set of jobs that were very low pay, that were considered low skill, but actually were completely kind of essential um, during this, this period. And, you know, on a hope, hope, my hopeful days are that actually we'll start thinking about what skilled work is and what skilled work isn't in a different kind of way, and that we really will be um, thinking about essential work um, as important work that actually is very skilled work, you know, like care work that's traditionally been seen as low skilled and therefore underpaid or childcare work, and that will rethink the sort of compensation on different kinds of work. And I mean, here there has been kind of some movement of regulation and unionization of kind of platform work and gig work. And I, you know, I, I'm hoping that that will kind of be a force uh, for change as well. You know, the whole business about contract contractual or employee status and those sort of things. Yeah, I mean, we need to modernize institutions. They, they were built around one role model of work, which made sense, you know, in the early 20th century and is out of date now. And it, it is a choice, right? You know, we can look, as I put up that figure about what low-wage work is paid in different countries. Mm. And, you know, countries, you know, there's a decision about what are acceptable labor standards, what social safety nets guaranteed. And, you know, yes, it, it reduces inequality. It means the rich people are less rich. It doesn't mean those countries grow less rapidly or are, you know, uh, you know, less innovative. <laughs> so, you know, it is a social and political choice over which we have agency. Uh, and we fool ourselves when we say there's only one way the market dictates it. It can't be another way than it is. Obviously, it can be different. So we have, uh, we actually, we have two minutes left here. So I think um, there's this question um, on um, 
on labor market institutions. And maybe I'll just put this question to both of you and we'll close it out with this. So this comes from Rio de, uh, uh, de Janeiro um, from uh, Cecilia Kersensky, who is a professor at the Federal University. Besides reinstalling labor market institutions, don't you think a bold decision to expand the public social services sector would help soften the pressure on the labor market? Actually, David, you just began to speak about the Biden administration. So, um, so public spending may be a final comment about that from both of you as we close it out. I, I, why not let Judy have last words? I'll just go quickly and then hand it over to her. Is that okay? Okay. Yeah. So um, that on you know public spending. I mean, I I don't know about public employment per se. I think the federal government has a you know the public has a huge role in, in steering and guiding not just employment but also innovation. And and innovation has a you know it has a an educational component, but also has a geographic component. It has an industrial component. So I I think that. The notion that the government should just step back and let the society run itself has been has gone to its logical extreme, and we need to swing back and figure out now how you structure that is a challenge. And obviously, it's quite possible to create a lot of inefficiency, a lot of waste, and a lot of you know, uh, yeah. So it needs to be done thoughtfully, uh, but it needs to be done. Stop there. Judy, you got um, thirty very, seconds. Yeah, I'm very pro um, public spending on innovation and directing innovation, and I. What I think is, is very important there is to recognise the history of how important, you know, state investments been to the internet and all these technologies we get, but also to redirect a lot of government um, R&D spending from military um, investment to, to social problems. And that's, that's a long theme that we could have a whole kind of session on, really, and how that skews the kind of technology we get. That's terrific. Folks, it's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity to listen to Professor uh, uh, Otter and Professor Weitzman, David and Judy, on behalf of the U.S. Center at the LSE. I want to thank you for the time that you've taken to share with us today and your thoughts about the future of work. To everybody out there, stay healthy, stay safe. We're still not out of this. Take care. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Thanks very, very much. much. Thanks, both of you. Thank you. Nice to you. Nice Great to, to be here. with you. Okay. Yeah. Terrific. Wonderful. That was okay. fun. Okay. Bye. Ciao. Bye. Thank you, Judy.